Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have been working on a big project now for quite some time, and I'm so thrilled that I finally get to share it with you. My newest book, Love Every Day is now available for pre-order. This book is in a different format than my previous books. So for each date of the year, I offer a short thought-provoking reflection and or practice that will help you cultivate relational self-awareness so that you can heal and grow all year long. Each daily practice in Love Every Day will help you understand the impact of your past and your partner's past, get your needs met, enhance intimacy, improve communication, and address relationship problems. For those of you who've been a part of my Instagram community for a long time and have been enjoying my short musings on all things relationships, I think this format is really going to resonate for you and create an enhanced version of this experience in a beautiful, giftable book. It even has a fancy little ribbon to keep your place as you read throughout the year. Whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so that you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. If you are ready to embark on a years-long journey of self-reflection and inquiry, this book will be your trusty guide, and I think you're really going to notice how you and your relationships flourish throughout the year as you cultivate this daily practice. I hope you will grab a copy for your own nightstand, for your loved ones, and for your friends. To pre-order the book now, visit the show notes of this episode or go to loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. This week, I wanted to share an episode focused on friendship with you. I'm joined in this conversation by the wonderful Lane Moore, an award-winning comedian, actor, writer, and musician. 
Moore is the front person and songwriter in the band It Was Romance, which has been praised everywhere from Pitchfork to Vogue. She has written for The Onion, The New Yorker, and was previously the sex and relationships editor at Cosmopolitan. She's the creator of the hit comedy show Tinder Live and the author of the critically acclaimed book, How to Be Alone, If You Want to and Even If You Don't. And now her new book is called You Will Find Your People, How to Make Meaningful Friendships as an Adult. You Will Find Your People is an expansive book, and in it, Lane is unafraid to touch on so many topics that I don't think get enough airtime in our culture, like friendship breakups, loneliness, and the impact that growing up in a complicated family system can have on our present-day friendships and our sense of self-worth. I loved talking to Lane about friendship myths, how to have the hard conversations with our friends, and how to let our friendships adapt when our lives inevitably change. I hope that you feel seen and validated in this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lane Moore. Hi, Lane. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today with me. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, our our paths first crossed a few years ago when we were both guests on 1A on NPR, and we were talking about being single in the pandemic. And I remember being just really impressed by you. And so I'm very, very happy to have a chance to spend a bit more time with you today. Thank you. Same. I can't wait to dive in, you know, she's talking about your new book and celebrating that. But I want to start with the reimagining love question that we ask all of our guests. So are you ready for the relational self-awareness question? I am, always. Okay, Okay. all right. So, Lane, what's a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you these days? I have really been working on accepting that there are people who want to show up for me and I might not be as alone as I once was. Like I realized that it had become, I, you know, you kind of just deal with whatever you think your story is, you know, when you get really attached to that story and because it was true for a long time, but I've really been working on seeing, oh, wow, there are people who love me and want to support me and want to help me. And now I'm tasked with, then I have to let them help me, let them support me. I have to find a way to get it into my nervous system that there is support and love and help. And that's so different than it's ever been in my life. And yeah, it's, it's teaching me, I think, you know, realizing your, your part in it. And sometimes we need care so much and we're kind of blocking it a little bit because it's it's scary. So I think that that's what I've been learning, even as somebody who advises other people. I'm like, oh, that's still that's still something that needs to be to be worked on. Yeah, I, th- I thought that in the book you wrote about that in such a such a nuanced way as you are again right now. It's it's about more than what what you're talking about is almost like the confrontation that happens inside of you. When you, right, when, when people are there for you and how there's a part of it that's like behavioral, you have to let people be there. You, you have to slash get to let people show up for you. But there's like a, this deeper piece that you're speaking to about the identity shift inside of you, like that there's, I am not 
I am no longer the person who is alone, who has to do everything alone, that there's an actual, like, not just changing your behavior about receiving, but also changing this identity, the story about yourself. Yeah. And it's so, there is so much nuance there that I think people like to ignore. Or maybe, you know, if you've never experienced these types of things within yourself or your loved ones, you wouldn't maybe understand they were there. Like, I know with my first book was called How to Be Alone, and it was about kind of dealing with how I had had to be alone most of my life and really, you know, trying to make the best of that. But I do remember uh, a troll comment uh, that was like, she's talking about being alone, but like she has this person and she has this person. And it's like, well, there's several things about that. One is that, you know, that wasn't really true. And all these, you know, you think you have someone and then you're like, oh, they're not really safe. Oh, this person's really nuts. And like still choosing those people who were, you know, um, perpetuating these behaviors. But also I think some people don't understand what it's like to technically have people around you, but to still be or feel very much alone because you were so extremely alone for most of your life. That doesn't magically go away when one or two people show up. I wish it did, but I think it's very human for it not to. You're, some part of you doesn't understand that. Yeah. I don't know why there is such an urge for people. I think probably it is the kind of anxiety that comes up inside the person when they imagine what it what it feels like to be truly alone. So maybe they're assuaging their own anxiety by being like, well, she's not really alone because she's got that person and that person, right? That's a bit easier to kind of soften the empathy because to feel the empathy of it. It could even be, you know, so often I really do have to reframe those, those comments because they're just, it's, they're so hurtful and you're like, wait, what? And now I feel defensive over a stranger who, you know, it's, it's fine. But, but then I think about it too. And who knows, maybe the person who wrote that is very alone themselves and tells themselves they shouldn't feel alone because they have two people. Like, who knows? It could be a projection of that person being like, uh, but you're not actually alone because you have two people. And the people in my own life have told me that that's enough and I shouldn't feel alone. So she doesn't get to feel alone either. And it's like, oh, you actually do get it. You just haven't put the pieces together that like you have that pain too. You you know what it feels like. That's right. Yeah. Well, and you you touch places in this book and in your work that, right, people don't like to touch within themselves and certainly don't like to talk about out loud. So I, yeah, I imagine somebody was like, just please turn the volume down, Lane, because it's really uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to witness your truth and your experience in the way so yeah, that but and I hear you. I mean, I hear that the 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 you part of it is that you then you then are face to face with trolly stuff like that that really has so much more to do with the person saying it and you're human and it gets in and yeah, but but then you know the other side of it too is like you know you have that fear that like but those feelings that you know we shouldn't talk about this. We don't talk about that. I have bumped up against that since I was a very, very little child. I have never liked that. I have never liked, we don't talk about that. We don't discuss that. Don't say that. That's inappropriate. I I don't think that facing trauma, pain, mental health challenges, I don't think it is inappropriate. I don't think it is rude. I think it's, I know for a fact that, you know, there might be one or two people who are like, don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. That's their deal because I also get hundreds of letters from people every single week saying, thank you for talking about this. I've never heard anybody talk about this. I've never heard anybody share 
these feelings. And what I want to do is release the shame around these things. So if those people want to stay stuck in that, I hope they can get out of it. But, you know, that's it. That's all I can say. And it's like reframing it in my own mind where I'm like, you know, you're not saying it for the people who still think we don't talk about that. Don't don't talk about that. That's that's rude. Whatever. Like, that's not who. No, that's, that's not, not who I'm writing for. Those are my people. So those are yeah. <laughs> those are the ones I want to no. talk to. Are the ones who are sitting at the polite dinner, going, "I wish we could talk about something a little more real." <laughs> I would really like that. Like, those are my people. <laughs> those are your people. Okay, so yeah. that is literally the name of your new book, which is "You Will Find Your People: How to Make Meaningful Friendships as an Adult." But before we go into all of the beautiful offerings you have given us about the topic of friendship, can we back up and just learn? A bit more about you, about your first book that you referenced, which is called How to Be Alone, your comedy show called Tinder Live, and just like you as a person. So tell us, give us a little glimpse of your journey, please. Absolutely. Yeah. So my first book uh, was called How to Be Alone If You Want to and Even If You Don't. And it was, uh, I really wanted to, interestingly to what we're talking about right now, you know, I was known as a comedian and actor and I created this comedy show Tinder Live, where I go on my dating app and I swipe through just the worst profiles that so many women see and are frustrated by. And we swipe right on them and we make jokes and it's surprisingly kind and so, so cathartic, particularly for women who are, you know, going on these dating apps and experiencing frustration and sexism, racism, violence, homophobia, all these things to be able to take the weirdest people on here and I and outweird them and kind of subtly call them out on stuff while also being able to make people laugh like a joke per minute was, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a through line in all of my work that wants to make people feel less alone as a comedian, as a writer, all of these things. So I tour, I've been touring with that show and uh, doing that show for a long time, and I really love it. And throughout my career, I was a writer for The Onion for a long time. I was an editor at Cosmo, all these things. And, you know, doing Tinder Live and people knew me, I think, as this like very funny person who was, you know, also giving advice and talking about mental health and all these things. And I think I just felt for a long time, I just felt never fully seen in the way that, you know, I guess some people don't need to. But for me, I had had a really unique, at least I I, I thought fairly, fairly unique uh, backstory of I grew up extremely alone. I had to raise myself. I had a really, really difficult childhood and didn't have any friends. There was no backup. You know, I, you often hear stories of like, yeah, this was really bad. But then this person came along. No one came along. Just nobody did. And so, you know, I had, I had to come along. Yeah, <laughs> I had I to come along. along. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I just spent my, my childhood focusing on what I wanted to do as an adult. And I knew I wanted to be a comedian. And so I, you know, would watch these specials voraciously and I knew I wanted to be a musician. So I learned every single instrument I could. I learned how to hit every single note that I could. And, you know, I just spent so much time just kind of, I guess, putting myself through child college. I don't know, but like doing, doing all of these things and, you know, always wishing, always feeling very alone, always feeling like I was probably the only one experiencing these things. So then there just came a time where I really wanted to write about something that was a little bit more weighted. And so when I wrote 
uh, How to Be Alone, I wanted to write about when you don't have the family you're supposed to have and you don't have the friends you're supposed to have and maybe you don't have the partner you're supposed to have yet. And, you know, the world that I was seeing was a world where everybody already had this figured out. No one ever struggled with it. Don't talk about it. Every single interview I ever read, every book dedication to my wonderful family and my beautiful friends and my perfect partner. I couldn't have done this without you. And I'm like, am I the only one who doesn't have all of this huge, powerful community? And I wrote the book with a lot of fear that, you know, I wrote something that I would have loved to read when I was 13, 23, at any age would have changed everything for me. But I was really scared at first that I was the only one who had a story like mine and people would be like, I don't get it. Like, what's what's she doing wrong that she wasn't able to have these things happen? And thank God, the absolute opposite happened. And it was like this groundswell of people being like, I relate to that. Even, even not exactly like apples to apples, but I relate so much to this in my own way. And, you know, also talking about a lot of the messages that were given about relationships and what it means if a, a woman is alone, what if it means if you're still single at a certain age, just all of these things that were taught about what it means if you're alone and the shame around that as though it's your fault. And so I wanted to write about that. And then uh, I'm also a musician in a band called It Was Romance, where uh, I talk a lot in the first book and a little bit in this book about some of the stories behind those songs, because they're also about these different things as well that you know you're not supposed to talk about that I really wanted to put in these songs because it felt like a safe place to put them in music whereas it might be harder to put them in comedy and yeah I've just noticed that the more I started talking about attachment styles and different mental health things and struggling with these things you know just a such a positive response on social media and that's I think such a gift because before that existed, you literally don't know that there's anybody like that, like you out there in this world. You literally think no one could ever understand you. I think I spent my whole life not just thinking that, but seeing it reflected where I would talk to people and you'd kind of try to show them a piece of yourself and they'd look at you like, what? Put that away. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And it reinforced the shame then that somehow you were alone because of something that had to do with you. Yeah. That's why I love writing about these things. I love talking about them because it's taken me so long to realize, like, especially with your family, if you have a hard time with your family, like, you didn't choose them. Nope. Like, we got assigned to a random group of people. That's right. And sometimes it was the wrong one. Like, that's it. And and it's painful to realize, but that's such a a huge piece because you're not supposed to talk about that. You're not supposed to experience it. It felt very scary to, to write about. Yeah. I feel like I'm holding two things at once, which is like one such deep like empathy and respect for your early years and what you, you know, what I can only imagine you went through and endured and such like admiration for what you have done with it. It's like the like I'm trying to hold them both, right? Because obviously I wish that it hadn't been that way for you. And it's incredible that we get to have access to your art and your humor and your writing, you know, because you have done what you've done with your story. Yeah, I I appreciate that so much. And I think it's it's a better way to look just in general at people than I, I know we love to say in my 
my first book, I talked about how people, one of the things people would say when I would kind of try to touch on that or whatever would say like, well, you know, you turned out great. Right. Like, someone oh, must have God. raised you right. And oh. I'm like, oh. hey, nobody really <laughs> raised me at all. I guess I raised myself yeah. right. And that's yeah. what I always tell people for themselves. But it's like, just because somebody turned out great doesn't mean there isn't so much pain there. And that's like something to be celebrated and admired and not a lot of times when people talk about it and they're like, well, you turned out great. It's like, all for the best. I don't think it is no. for the best. No, no. You could have actually... yeah, gotten to some places with a little bit less pain. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I yeah. think I could have yeah. gotten there faster. And sure. like, I'm really glad that I can now reframe the way that we look at trauma and hardship as like, no, it's not like all for the best. I think that every person deserves to be like loved and protected Throughout their life, I, I I don't, I wouldn't wish, you know, you'd never wish that on your child. Like, I hope somebody really messes you up because it's going to make you really fun. Like, why do? <laughs> no. no, 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 right. I, no, I don't. You would never want that for a no. loved one, but we do kind of talk about each other that way. I think, here. again, as a way of just kind of calming ourselves. Moving on. Yeah, yeah, calming ourselves down, moving on. Right. And because we don't, yeah, we really are not taught anywhere how to hold space for each other, right? No, and hold, yeah, both of those things. It's it's so it's so important. That's something I try to do all the time as well. I'm like, there's two sides often when you hear someone talking yeah. and to try to hold both of them. That's right. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I So then, right, so you went from your first book, How to Be Alone, and to write a book about friendship. And there's, there were a number of moments in the book where I just was like, like the little, as Oprah would say, the little baby hair stood up on my <laughs> neck. And one of the first times was when you write about this idea of how, you know, we don't, we don't, none of us chooses our family. That is just sort of a cosmic lottery. And that if we are, if we grow up in families that are not able to love us the way that we really do need and deserve, it can set us up for more desperation in our friendships because a friendship is such a profoundly chosen relationship. So you're making that link to the way, you know, one of the ways in which people with complicated family systems can be at risk of tolerating. You write, uh, contorting ourselves to make a bunch of people like us and never leave. Can you talk a little bit more about why some of us, especially from complicated families, might be more at risk of losing ourselves when it comes to friendship? Yeah, because we don't have a solid sense of self. We don't have a solid sense of like, I'm great. I'm enough. People either like me or they don't. Like that sounds that sounds amazing. But for so many of us and for the majority of my life, that is not how I was able to approach friendships. I really was choosing them from this place of, oh, I had a really 
complicated family system. And because of that, I was constantly trying to do whatever I could, become whoever I had to become to get people to be nice to me, to be safe, to be, you know, what those kind of survival mechanisms. Because when we're kids, your family has to love you. Your like child brain can't understand if they don't or if they're not keeping you safe or they're whatever it is, like your child brain doesn't understand that. So it thinks, I, I got to fix it. This has got to be on me. And we can keep that part of our brains that's like, oh, if I'm an adult and my friend is being mean to me or is judging me or is whatever it is, I have to change. Something's wrong with me. Let me fix it so that they don't leave. And people who don't have trauma around that, I've, I've, Met them, they seem very free, um, but, they, but they're, they don't do that. They're very much just like, I'm great, like, take it or leave it. Like, if you don't like me, that's your problem. Sometimes to a fault, there are people who sure. will do that to a fault. Sure. And you're like, no, no, mm-hmm. there's some mm-hmm. space here for you to see things differently too, you know. So you don't want to go to the other extreme, but, you know, you certainly don't want to be, I think a lot of us, when that has been our experience with family in our formative years, we really, you know, part of your brain goes, okay, we couldn't fix this relationship as a kid, but we can fix it with friends. And even as a kid, I was doing that where, you know, I couldn't fix things at home, but in my friends, I was like, oh, let me like become what they'll really like. And then they'll, and then they'll love me. And then it will be okay that I'm struggling with this other thing because I'll have fixed it here. And then when that doesn't work, we go to romantic relationships. At least that's what I did. We go to romantic relationships. Oh, if I can like get you to love me and contort myself around that, I will fix it. And so it just creates this. We don't even know that we're doing it. That was not no. something I was conscious of, but I absolutely was. I was thinking about my middle school self and the ways in which I didn't, there were parts of the social fabric, the, the, the kind of hidden rules of friendship that I didn't understand because my family system was really, really struggling. And it, and it, I hadn't, I don't know that I've ever in my life thought of it as a disadvantage. Like that I was, you know, you, that's something else that you write about is really how much privilege a stable, loving family creates when it comes to friendship, because friendship tends to be, right? We, we cherish and we crave these like lifelong friendships. Our experiences of friendship start when we're at this very young age. So it's versus like a romantic relationship where we've got a bit of time to build that in. But friendships are really from the get-go. And so if we are struggling in our family system, we really are starting with the wind very much at our face around social dynamics, around understanding and being just available for friendship. And it was really, it, it led me, you know, that, that part in your book really led me to kind of like replay some moments in my, especially like my junior high, adolescent, like young adolescent years where there just were parts that I didn't, I didn't get because I didn't have, I think the bandwidth to be able to get what friends who were in perhaps more stable situations were able to understand. So can you talk a little bit more about that connection? Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing as well is Part of it is the bandwidth. You're not as maybe as light as they are um, because you're dealing with the weight of everything that's secretly going on. But then there's also, and this is discontinued, but there's also this thing you're bumping up against with your friends when you realize, at least seemingly, that they come from a super loving, safe, stable, supportive family where you're like, 
confused and you're jealous of them and you might resent them, but you're 12 and you don't, you can't articulate that. And even if you could, they wouldn't know how to respond to it. But, you know, I think for so long, I didn't like going over to friends' houses who had really great families. It was deeply painful for me because I think for me, one of my things was so many things that I've been through in my life. I had to tell myself for so long, like, everybody's going through this. Don't worry about it. Like to kind of survive so your brain doesn't break. And then as a child or even as an adult, when I've talked to people and then they'll say things and I'm like, you got that too. You got that as well. You got that as well. Or when, you know, Mother's Day happens, Father's Day happens, all those things. And everyone's like, thank God for my perfect family. Thank God for my perfect family. And you're again, you're like, oh my God, everyone did get it. And it's like, just those moments. And so I think there's that. And then you can't communicate what's going on at home. And you also might not even want to because you're still feeling like you you don't, you barely understand it yourself. And then you have the added pressure of especially in, you know, I don't know, 11 to 17 or whatever. Like there's a certain version of you you have to be in order to be liked. There is a social system that you're trying to navigate so that you don't get bullied, so that people like you, so that certain people like you in a certain way. And then there are those like mean girls underpinnings where you're supposed to understand a different language you don't understand and you don't. That's what I think that's the other thing I didn't have the bandwidth for. I didn't have the bandwidth to like play psychological mind games when I'm already dealing with enough. I don't want to play this like, oh, really? Did you say that? Because we're on a three-way call. Like I didn't didn't have the bandwidth for that. (laughs) I'm like, I just wanted, you want them to catch you. You want to have those friendship so that you can be like, ah, things are up at home, but we've got each other. Right. That's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And you doing what you've done in the book, like you give us a chance to kind of go back and tend to and honor, you know, all of those moments and revisit them, right? Revisit them with different eyes because there is, there can be so much shame that, that lingers and then ends up continuing to to form barriers in real time, right here, right now in relationships. You write that um, friendships require so much timing, luck, communication, and puzzle piece compatibility that any two people who make it to the promised land of true friendship are almost heroic. How do you define, what's your working definition of true friendship? I wouldn't define it the way that I think that we are, we often define it, uh, you know, via like, we knew each other X number of years, or it's, it's always these like kind of potentially superficial definitions. I think true friendship is being able to be as much of yourself as you possibly can and know it's fully safe to be all of it. The light parts, the dark parts, the, the happy, funny parts, the struggling, messy parts, and to know that that person will love you and accept you and support you. I think that's it. I, because I think a lot of the other stuff, how often you see them, if you live in the same city, I think there's irrelevant. I think it's because there can be people you've known 20 years, there can be people who live down the street, whatever, who might still not make you feel very known or seen or loved or accepted. So none of that matters. I think just when I look at my friendships, that's what it really is, where I don't feel like I have to censor myself. I don't feel like I have to, you know, when somebody says like, how are you doing? I know they really mean it. 
I know they don't just expect me to say, good, you. I can't do that kind of friendship. I can't do it. I don't. <laughs> Life is too short and too hard sometimes. I can't. I can't do friendships it's a like lot that. Of, a lot of mental gymnastics to be filtered. Right. And it's again, can I bring this up? Can I, I don't like, this? I don't. And I went through that for so much of my life. And I just realized like, yeah. no, fortunately, I finally have better people in my life who never, ever want me to just say, good, you like, and I don't want them to say it. And I'm, we're very clear with each other about that. And it's taken a lot of communication and cultivation of that. It didn't just automatically happen. It's something, you know, you have to kind of mindfully create, I think. Well, and I think I'm thinking about, you know, the people who listen to this show, who are, you know, who listen to the show because they are deeply curious about their own journey of healing and growth and deeply want those kinds of relationships that are more than just, you know, the chit chat and the putting on a happy smile. And I think that brings me to want to ask you about the risk of outgrowing friendships, right? Like there's sort of one of the risks of being on this journey of, you know, relational self-awareness and, and growth and curiosity about the impact of earlier experiences, I think puts can put us, it, it certainly, as we continue to change and evolve, it changes the space between ourselves and somebody else. And what felt previously like a ceiling, like this was good enough, then, you know, sort of becomes like almost like a new floor for us. So what do you, how can we do both work on ourselves and maintain friendships? What do we do if we you know, how, what is it like to outgrow friendships? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? When we outgrow a friendship or we suspect we outgrown a friendship, <laughs> I think we all go into a state of denial. I, I really do because, and I think the reason we do it, like, or at least self-doubt, like real self-doubt and then denial, where it's kind of like, I feel like this isn't working anymore. Don't say that. No, no, no. Like, you know, things take work and they're not always easy. And this person's been there for you. And stop thinking that, like, that's where my brain goes. It, it, it talks me out of it. Like, don't give up. Don't do that. Come on, blah, blah, blah. And like all these things. And then we kind of go into like, and you know, people are are human and they can only give us what they can give us sometimes. And it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You know, you go through all those things, even though your gut is telling you something's off here. And I know why we do it. I think we do it because finding friends, especially as an adult is hard. And, and we, I know I always wanted the friends that we met at like five and we were friends for the rest of our lives. You know, I never wanted them to end. And so it makes sense to want to go into that denial this and and that self-doubt the same way we might with a family member of just like, hmm, I feel like this family member and I are not healthy for each other. Like, what are you talking about? Like something in your brain comes on. That's your, right. That's your father. That's, that's social your, pressure. Right, yeah, yeah. Like you can't say that. You can't do that. And yeah, the same thing with your, our friends. We're like, you've been mm-hmm. friends for years. How could you even say like that judgment that we don't talk about that? We don't do that. But, and I know, especially it's, it's been so Oh, um, really validating to hear from even some of the people who like, I feel like probably have everything figured out, probably never deal with this. And since, you know, I've been writing this book and talking about this book so much, having some of them come to me and be like, I have a friend. I feel like I've kind of outgrown and I don't know. They're just kind of like this. And I'm like, we're all doing it. We're all doing this. Like, I'm sure I'm wrong. Right. Like that's, I'm sure I'm I'm looking at this wrong. And it was so validating because I wondered why I wasn't able to be like that really cool person who's like, she sucks. I'm out. Like, I can't, I, you know, that's not how I look at it. But, I, and I don't think 
most of us do because we want to work through it. And I'm such a like, I want them to magically be better and be like, I'm so sorry, Lane. And then we hug and then everything's good forever. But that almost never happens. Right. Like the maybe the middle space between kind of that like gaslighting ourselves. Like it's it's, you know, what you're feeling isn't real. And the other extreme of they suck is like this middle space of list like of just non-judgmental recognition that I have expanded. I live a bit differently. This other person doesn't value that, isn't interested in that. Therefore, I'm probably as annoying to them as they are to me. You know, almost like a sense of like, we just, we don't, we don't, we don't value, we don't value the same ways of spending time. We don't value the same kinds of conversations. So that it's not, I think sometimes what's so tricky about this healing work is we can get like a little hierarchical, right? That it's better this way than that way. And I think there there's some truth to that. And there also is just about the preferences that we each have around what we want and expect and need in relationship. No, absolutely. And I think that that's, I was really conscious when writing this book of, don't get me wrong, I could have easily written a book that was like, and then this one time this friend did this and that was so crappy. And that's one of this friend did this and that was so crappy. And I was writing that like, you can get caught up in that, but but because I've done so much work around this, I was really proud that I was able to write this. I even like took out a story because even though it was told very fairly, I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter what this person did or didn't do. I could list those examples and maybe people would find them helpful, but I also wouldn't want to make it sound like I was right and they were wrong. See, like that's actually not interesting to me and it's not the point. And, and so I think like when we're able to find that part of ourselves that goes, it doesn't matter. I, I, maybe I was right. Maybe I was right. It doesn't matter. It What matters is we were not compatible and letting them go, not with a like, oh, I hope one, I mean, sometimes people really do hurt you and it's hard to have this and that's fine. But like, and a lot of the people that I've had to let go are because they really, really hurt me. But to be able to sit there and go with some of them, uh, you know what? Like, I don't actually wish you like, I don't wish you a lifetime of pain. I wish you the kind of friendships that where you're giving what they need, where you feel, cause there's, I try to look at it as the friendships I've had where I was giving a lot and they, they were not giving a lot and they were taking a lot. I'm like, well, you know, and, and then I was always disappointed by them. I'm like, well, it probably feels bad to constantly feel disappointing just as it feels bad to be disappointed. So let me release us from this. You don't have to keep feeling like you're disappointing me and I don't have to keep feeling like I'm I've disappointed, you know, I'm disappointed in you. It's a horrible pattern. So let me just release both. If you can look at it that way instead of a like, because I think that's it. I think a lot of times when we're trying to end something, we don't want it to end poorly, even if they hurt us. Like, you know, we don't want to go up and be like, well, I'm breaking up with you. Like, I don't think ultimately that feels that good for us. So that reframing has been very helpful to me. Yes. And I think you did it really, I think that it's a relational framing, right? The framing around that is relational rather than this kind of binary, good, bad, right, wrong, victim, villain, you know, which I think certainly, certainly I think is in the culture. You you talk about these kind of two stereotypes, especially of female friendships, where it's either perfect, you know, perfect, smooth sailing, total simpatico, or it's this kind of passive aggressive, competitive, 
Um, and, and I think that real friendships are, are far messier, right? But those are the kind of the two notions that we have. And you, I really love, I mean, throughout the book, you give us so many opportunities to reflect on how much we internalize friendship myths based on what we see in the media and pop culture about what we're taught friendship is supposed to be. And we don't, we have very, very few examples that really honor the messiness and complexity and imperfection and refinement that, that true friendship, you know, requires. Yeah. You know, I, the lack of TV shows, movies, books that we see where a friendship is messy, where a friendship ends, where a friendship is challenging, that only contributes to our shame around our friendships. Because if we only see friendships that are perfect, 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 I know for me, I was watching these all the time and thinking, okay, well, I don't have that right now. I'm sure I'll get it when I get to high school. I'm sure I'll get it when I get to college. And then you do those things and you're like, oh God, it's still not here. And the shame sets in of like, I'm seeing this reflected in in pop culture. It definitely exists. Whereas I've come to learn, I don't think it does exist that often, that, that it's that clear cut and no one ever has a problem. No one ever feels bad. You know, you have like one fight in your entire 20 year friendship. Like that's not realistic. I wish it was because it's so comforting to watch those shows and watch a relationship like that. But these are fictional relationships. And I don't think that it's, that's not to say that, you know, getting as close to it as possible is, is not something to strive for. Cause I still want it. I still, you know, I will never tell anybody to like lower your expectations. Life is bad. That's not it, but it's just for the purposes of not having the shame around like, well, I'm watching Anne of Green Gables and they're best friends and they never have any issues. And she understands her immediately. And she understands her. And like, I'm watching New Girl and they all get along and it's fine. And like, and then we feel shame about ourselves. And so for the purposes of that, sitting there and saying, well, do you have anybody in your life who you have fun with? Because that counts. Do you have anybody in your life who you see sometimes you have a really nice moment with? Like making it less about it has to look this way or else I've failed and I'm bad and I'm unworthy of love and friendship and caring. We have to get away from that. It's been so crucial for me to get away from that because it's such a high bar and it's not realistic <laughs> for many of us. Right. And the other thing that you, something else that you do is you normalize some kinds of friendships are friendships that require work and that can be available for work. And you, you say sometimes like we need to talk about the friendship, like have a conversation about the relationship about, Hey, here's what I'm looking for in a friendship. And what are you available for? And you make the point that there's, you think, and I agree more vulnerability in that kind of what are we to each other? What are the terms of engagement here? There's more vulnerability in that kind of conversation between friends, even than between romantic relationship partners. And why do you think that is? Like, why might it be harder for us to say to a friend, like, let's talk about us, who we are, what we're wanting here. Why might that be even harder for us than with a romantic partner? Yeah, because I, I think a big part of it, again, is because we don't see it reflected. We don't talk about it. With romantic relationships, there's so many resources and things that are like, how do you tell your partner what you need? How to, you know, on the third date, how to tell them what you're looking for, what you need. We don't do that with friends. It's just a like, we like each other. We'll just keep riding this wave. And it's like, 
if we, you know, and it doesn't have to be so formal in the same way that it doesn't have to be formal in a romantic relationship either. You don't have to sit there with a clipboard and be like, I'm looking for this friendship. Are you like, it doesn't have to be like that. But I know in so many of my friendships, and I think a lot of people's friendships, we just kind of let the other person set the tone or we're like, we'll talk about it at some point. Or when it, when you start to see that friction coming up, you're like, well, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want them to feel attacked. What if I bring it up and they're mad and then I have to calm them down or they leave and it ruins it. And just, and so we bury those things inside of us where in an ideal situation that's very achievable, we could say that we could open up this conversation and both people could get to say the things they felt weird saying. And we can both sit there and go, this isn't weird. This is great. Tell me more. Like that is such a thing we don't encourage. And from doing it myself, you know, I realized, oh, this is possible with the right people. You can phrase it in a way you can say, hey, this is how I kind of feel. What do you think? to be able to do it is so valuable and so healing. And then you actually see changed behavior. You see things are noted and it just makes you feel so much stronger in your friendship because you're like, oh, when these things come up, we will handle it together. That's real. Uh And it is. Uh And it's this other avenue also that opens up. That's about the ways in which as friends, we are mirrors for each other, right? So the way I'm feeling about something that you did or didn't do, a part of it, sure, is about your behavior. Maybe your behavior was thoughtless, or maybe you did not meet a you know expectation that was really clear to me. And maybe also you are mirroring something about me, right? Something about the dynamic between us reminds me of something that has to do with my sister or my mom or my own insecurity, right? And so by being brave enough to say to you, can we talk about this? I open up a brand new plane of possibilities for you to either learn something about how you come across in relationship, me to learn something about my own wounds and how they are creating a particular set of perceptions that I have of you and and all of the above, right? Because it's my stuff plus your stuff that's getting, you know, creating the dance between us again and again and again. And that's something that, as you're saying, We just, for as little, you know, I feel like this is like the whole point of reimagining love is to be working at that edge of these kinds of conversations, largely an intimate partnership, but it's why I'm so excited to have you on to talk about how that same work of what this moment feels like to me, what this moment feels like to you, curiosity about my stuff, curiosity about your stuff, like that's available for us also in our friendships. Exactly. I mean, it really is. And and so much of the, we spend so much time talking about romantic relationships, like they're really complex. They need a lot of work and friendships are really easy and everybody has them and they don't need any work. That's ridiculous. It's two people. And literally, as you said, it is your stuff and my stuff and our stuff. There's no way that is going to be somehow easier because what, you're not sleeping together. Like that's just so strange that we, that we put it in these separate compartments Because yeah, exactly. Like I have my past stuff that's going to come up in my friendships and my friends have their past stuff that's going to come up in their friendships. And if you're able to have those moments when you're like, oh, you're sensitive about this for this reason. And I'm sensitive about this for this reason. And maybe some of these were misunderstandings. Like the work that we do in our romantic relationships is just as valuable and just as transferable. And it's interesting that, you know, we view it as so much more fearful. But at the same time, I will say, 
if you found, you know, that you haven't found the romantic relationships to work as well as you want yet, friend, like, I think that we put things in the reverse order. I think we're like, the partnership is most important. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. You know, I really think your friendships, if you have this group of friends that are really, really great and connected, or even one friend that's really great and connected, that's going to make your romantic partnership better. That's going to make, like, that's so, it's so crucial. We can't put all this on our romantic partner. We just can't, like, to have this full life. And also, if, God forbid, that relationship ends, we have friends that we didn't, our whole social support system didn't just walk out the door. It's so important. Yeah. And whatever, whatever work we're willing and able to do within our friendships, right. As you're saying, those, those are skills that are transferable to romantic relationships and vice versa. Yeah. Because you've been shown like, oh, it's safe to do this. It's safe to ask for this. It's safe to talk about this. I tried it with my friends. So then when the right person comes along romantically, you're like, oh, I think I can do the same thing. And then if they act like a jerk, you're like, well, my friend didn't do that when I talked to her about it. Bye. Like, you know, it, <laughs> right. it creates Therefore, I know that it's possible, right? It's, yeah. I know that there, it's possible to feel safer than I do right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think some of the most challenging moments in friendship can be when one or both is going through a major life change, you know, and that requires the relationship to flex. And oftentimes it is. One is getting married. One is having a baby. Like those kind of significant, you know, milestones or a significant job change or a move. What advice would you have for for, you know, people whose friendship is having to change, you know, to some degree because one or both are going through those milestones. How do we, how do we keep friendship strong as we, you know, make these individual shifts? Yeah, that was such a, I wanted to, to do an entire chapter about that because it felt so huge to me as we see our friends you know, maybe we're the single friend and everyone else is getting married, or maybe we're the only people who have a baby now and our friends don't, or, you know, just all these different ways that you want to think that these like beautiful moments in our lives won't shift our friendships, but they do. And I, I've seen it firsthand when like uh, someone I was really close friends with, I, I talk about in the book and then she started dating somebody and they were like attached to the hip. And all of a sudden they were just in this relationship and we kind of didn't talk anymore. And it's this like, it was so, so painful for me because you're happy for this person that they found love, but you also kind of feel like they're gone because they are in a way. And I think that's where communication comes in as hard as it can be. But, you know, cause I've heard it on so many levels. I've, I've heard it when I talk to friends of mine who have kids and they're like, I miss my friends. They don't invite me out because I had a kid and they assume I don't want to go. And I'm like, I wasn't inviting you because I didn't want to be your, you know, a childless kid being like, do you want to go out at nine on a Tuesday? And you're like, no, but, but literally they wanted me to ask. So they wanted me to, and even if they said no to feel included. And I just, that's why I want to encourage this kind of communication because these life changes are going to affect us all in different ways. And the best thing I have found is to communicate with my friends and say, hey, this might sound weird. I've kind of not been inviting you out because you just had two babies and I feel like you don't want to go. Am I reading that right? And if I'm not, I want to do it in another way because we make these assumptions sometimes based on our own wounds, you know, and they're not true. They're not true. So I think you know, what it means when someone doesn't have time for us, what it means when we assume someone doesn't want to see us. Like, I think that's one of the biggest things that we do in, in our friendships that's just not serving us and is only 
helped by communication. We're primed for those assumptions. Like I'm just thinking about all the ways in which we are set up to make those assumptions. One is like that idealistic notion that if you, especially I think that women have, that if you have to have those conversations with your girlfriend, you must not understand her. She it must not like this sort of idealized notion that there shouldn't, she should just know. And that gets in the way. I think the ways in which in a patriarchal culture, women are taught, like women are sort of put on these, you know, hierarchies around if you're married versus if you're single, right? All of that kind of competition and jealousy and fear and uh, shame, perhaps, right? That maybe then silences and then layer on top of it, right? Like as you're saying, the kind of wound of if I feel you pulling away and that kind of pricks me in that same place where I felt abandoned as a child, alone as a child, that may end up silencing me even more. So it's like there's so many factors in the mix that can create these assumptive stories of you must not want to be near me anymore. Right. And then you're pulling away because you feel ignored. They could pick up on that and be like, well, I felt like you pulled away. And you're like, I did because you pulled away. And it's just this like, (laughs) and you're sitting there and you're like, well, you know, we may not be 13 anymore, but these are still very 13-year-old ways of communicating. It happens to even the best of us. Yeah. It just does. Yeah. Because you have those, because a lot of those wounds are still 13-year-old kids in there, and they're still kind of acting like little 13-year-old kids, and you're like, oh, you don't even realize it sometimes. Yeah. Well, and and maybe in friendships, we are, are we are even more at risk of going back to those 13-year-old selves, because when we were 13, I mean, some of us were working on romantic relationships at 13, but mostly we were, you know, it was a lot around peer dynamics, friendship dynamics. So, of course, it takes us back to those really tender ages where we did not have the perspective that's available to us now. We literally couldn't have that perspective. Yeah, exactly. That's, Mm. that's what we learned. And then we don't, I think that's part of what the challenge too, is that like, we learned what we learned at these specific ages and then we never updated our files. Right. (laughs) We just were like, that's how it is. And it's like, oh no, no, we know more now we can do better now. There's, there's so much, such a better way we can, we can do this if we, if we choose to. Okay. So as I move us to closing, I'm thinking about, okay, there's a listener and he or she is thinking about a friend where maybe there's some distance or maybe there's some ruffle and they haven't addressed it. What might you want to be whispering in their ear right now? So it's two things that I I like to say, because there's two sides to this. Uh, Anybody who says there's not has not considered this other side and I don't know why, but um, (laughs) because what people always want to say is it's like, they either want to, they either want to go to like Talk to them about it, obviously, or they want to go to like, get out of there. You don't need them. No, hold on. <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. too, Slow right? it Slow it, again, those two <laughs> polar opposites. It has to be these two extremes, right? That no nuance is allowed. Yeah. Two things. One, have you talked to them about it? Have you talked to them? About, have you had a real honest conversation? Not where you like kind of said it and you assume they knew what you meant, which I've done, no judgment, but um, that doesn't, you need to say it clearly sometimes uh, is the truth. And if you haven't done that, do that. If you have done that and you've done it many, many times, if you lean more towards me, who tends to be a little bit more people-pleasing, giving people way too many chances, magically expecting them to change, if you lean towards that, then it's okay to go. You don't have to have a final conversation because so many of my friendships, I've been like, well, I can't just leave. I have to have like one final conversation with them where I say, you know, as I said before, like you've hurt me and this isn't working. And it's like, no, 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 no. Cause that's just another, you don't need to do it. If you've had this conversation, they know what you need. They're never going to give it to you for your own 
sanity, your own self-respect, now you can leave. It's okay. You've done enough. You didn't, you're not ghosting them. You're not leaving without warning. The warning was the multiple conversations you tried to make it better. And now is the grief. Now is the grief. Right. Because sometimes, sometimes we just are like, but I think that I didn't really right, say yes. it loud enough <laughs> or clear. And I wasn't standing on my head the eighth time. And so maybe I need to be. I didn't cry. Yeah. Maybe so if I cry, they'll know how much pain cry, they yeah. put me through. Yeah. And maybe yeah. if I, and it's like, Stop. Yeah. Stop. It's so it's so hard to let go of the illusion of control and to just let there be grief. Yeah. Because again, for us, I mean, it goes with everything you said about the mythology. If we have mythology about how friendship should be, then we certainly have mythology around how it shouldn't hurt when when we when a friendship ends. Like we have no we have no training, no education, no reference point for how to grieve friendship. And that's perhaps also what keeps somebody trying and trying and trying is like, okay, what does it look like to grieve the loss of a friend? And so you are really inviting somebody to give themselves permission to just grieve and let go and know that sometimes, even if you really can see a different path forward, sometimes it just isn't available. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you're honest with yourself, if you've been dealing with this long enough, you've been grieving it while you were in it. You've already been grieving it, and it's so much harder to grieve it while you're in it. So allow yourself to move on and and grieve it when at least you're not in it and grieving it. <laughs> oh, Lane, I really, really have enjoyed this time with you. Can you please, if if somebody is just discovering you and your work for the first time in this episode, can you please tell people where they can go to learn more about you? Yes. Um. So. Uh, my first book is called How to Be Alone, and my second book is called You Will Find Your People, and you can get both of them at your local bookstore. Amazon, there's also audiobooks for both of them, and I read both audiobooks and do voices and things like that, which is fun. Um, you can find my tour dates on my website, lanemore.org, and all of my social media profiles on every single app are uh, Hello Lane Moore, so you can find them there. Wonderful. We will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lane, for opening up such an important and validating conversation about friendship and its place in our lives. You can find Lane's book, You Will Find Your People, in the show notes of this episode, which I know you're really going to love this book. I hope you're going to add it to your collection. Thank you for listening. And until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.